Our reading this morning is 1 Samuel, chapter 31, verses 1 to 13. Saul takes his life. This is on page 303 in your Bibles. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But the armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men died together that same day. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled. And the Philistines came and occupied them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his arm in armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths, and fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. When the people of Jabesh-Gilead heard of what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men journeyed through the night to Bethshan. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Bethshan and went to Jabesh, where they burned them. Then they took their bones and buried them under a tamask tree at Jabesh, and they fasted seven days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, our Father, thank you for your, your word to us. We pray as we look at it together, that you will be at work amongst us by your Spirit, leading us into deeper truth, that we may live and serve you. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You do have a a bulletin that's got some bullet points. You might find those um, useful to help uh, guide as we go through. If you are new, um, you might be... uh, hearing that reading uh, and think that you've maybe walked into St. Pessimistic Church Blackheath. Um, 
And uh, it'll probably be confirmed uh, for you by the sermon title that I'm giving, which is The End. (laughs) We've reached the last chapter of 1 Samuel, the end in our series, um, but that's not the end that we're talking about. We've been looking for a leader, looking for a leader. That's been the title of our series. I expect that none of us have known uh, what it is and what it means to be totally crushed in battle. In way, uh, uh, recently in our remembrance, and we've been hearing about the battle of the Somme, for example, and what it means to be crushed in battle. Over 57,000 men died on the first day of the Somme alone. Being crushed in battle, uh, that's what happened here on Mount Gilboa, verse 1. Do keep your Bibles open at page 303. And it's as if the writer is a, a reporter, in a way, and he invites us to see the crushing defeat. And uh, I want to give us, uh, if you like, the, the reported headlines that might have occurred. Um, so you've got four headlines on the outline. The first headline is a hard calling. A hard calling. Look at verse 2. It says, The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. Now, we've met um, Jonathan a few times in our journey through 1 Samuel. But he is crushed too. And I want to pause to think about that for a moment. He would have been the heir to the throne, wouldn't he? But I doubt that he was thinking about that now. In fact, back in chapter 18, uh, he essentially gave up his position as heir and gave it to David, didn't he? He said he made a covenant with David, God's anointed king who is actually on the run. And as we've gone through 1 Samuel, I don't know whether you've been like me, maybe been a bit tempted to think at times... Oh, if only Jonathan had been king. Have you ever thought that? I, I like Jonathan. He's a, he's a good chap. He's a good sort. He, why couldn't he succeed Saul? He, he does seem to do the right things. Why couldn't God do things differently? Why didn't God allow Jonathan to reign? All these why questions spill out. But God didn't do it like that, did he? God did things differently. Jonathan here lies dead in battle. And I want to suggest to you there is something, uh, there is such a thing as a tragic faithfulness. A tragic faithfulness. Such a thing uh, here as Jonathan. Jonathan in terms, uh, in human terms, is of royal material, isn't he? Uh, He's got leadership credentials. What a splendid king he would make. But Jonathan would never become king. And so we're left with all these questions of why Jonathan was eliminated. Why didn't he get a shot at being king? Why the waste, Lord, we might be tempted to cry. And I think our questions like that are often quite revealing 
about the way that we think, the, the way that our minds are, are programmed to think with a kind of self-fulfillment as a right. Self-fulfillment as a right. If we're, if we're clever and industrious and disciplined enough, our efforts should be crowned with opportunity and success. It's the way that we tend to think in our culture. In a real sense, that what we're saying is we're saying to God, to Jesus, assist us in our quest of self-fulfillment. It's kind of using God for ourselves. But Jonathan, the king, Jonathan here, the kingdom was not his to be seized, not his to rule, not his to take, but instead it was his to serve, to serve. You see, it's a tragic Maybe a, tra- a tragic life isn't a tragic life if it's lived in faithfulness to what Christ asks of us in the circumstances that he's given us. All of us like to dream, don't we? like to dream about the future or sometimes we like to look back and dream about what things might have been. In our hearts, we hold on to dreams that sometimes have been crushed by life, haven't they? That have never been fulfilled. And I wonder what it might be for you. I think it is actually aptly summed up by that very moving and famous song from Les Miserables. I'm sure you all know it. Um, When Fantine sings, doesn't she? When she's left alone, she's crushed, she's destitute. And, and what did she sing? There was a time when men were kind, when their voices were soft and their words inviting. There was a time when love was blind and the world was a song. And the song was exciting. There was a time and then it all went wrong. But there are dreams. There are dreams that cannot be. And there are storms that cannot be weathered. I had a dream my life would be so different from the hell I'm living, so different now from what it seemed. Now life has killed the dream I dreamed. You know the song. God may call you to faithfulness in situations and places that are far from what you dreamed they would be. Jonathan was exactly where he was supposed to be. We mustn't look at Jonathan and say, he wasn't in God's will. No, he was right next to the anointed king, who was his father, fighting the enemies of Israel. He was right where he was meant to be. That was his calling. It was a hard calling. And we have hard callings from time to time. We may be living in a hard calling right now. Some of you may be lonely for some reason. Maybe you're a widow or a widower. Some of you are single. Some of you are divorced. You didn't exactly plan life out to be the way it is. You're in a hard place. Not what you hoped for. Not what you had dreamed You live on with the pain, with being crushed, 
But, you're, but you are being faithful in non-ideal circumstances and situations. And sometimes God gives us a hard calling. A hard calling. Perhaps that's the first headline. But secondly, a true word. There's a true word here in verses 3 to 7. And verse 6 acts as a kind of summary for us. It says, So Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men died together that same day. It's a blunt way of describing it's the end. But here we have the word of God being fulfilled. This is the fulfillment of what it said earlier in earlier chapters. For example, in chapter 28, just a few pages earlier in verse 19, Samuel says, The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me, will be with Samuel, will be dead. It's a true word. It's a fulfillment of God's word. God's word is infallible. Now, we need to notice, if God's word of disaster is true, it also tells us, doesn't it, that God's word of restoration and deliverance is also going to come true. Because God cannot lie when he says things. Titus 1-2 says that. Because after God rejects Saul for his disobedience and his rebellion... In chapter 15, God, through Samuel, gives a word of restoration. He says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil. Be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. It looks like things are falling apart, and yet God has anointed another king. You see, none of this circumstances none of this defeat and crushing defeat has it caught god by the surprise there is hope it's not all gone down the pan you see there is a positive word and a negative true word speaking and we need to remember both and hold both together and sometimes we fall off one side of the of that and the, and the other. And we need to hold them together. Jesus does it himself. He says a, he says a, a, a negative word in Luke 13.3. He says, unless you repent, you too will die. Sounds quite negative, doesn't it? But on the other hand, he says in John 6.37, whoever comes to me, I will never turn away. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, it should give us tremendous encouragement. I hope it encourages us when we are in those moments of defeat, when we're feeling crushed, when we're feeling abandoned, when everything in our lives is falling apart. The truth is there's a true word, and God gives us encouragements of restoration of hope and forgiveness and eternal life. Remember that when you're going through the hard moments. That's the third, second headline. The third headline is a shameful tragedy, a shameful tragedy. Now, I'm sure it wouldn't have failed to notice there's lots of sadness in this story, isn't there? There's a sad end to Saul, there's a sad end to the army, to his sons, lots of loss of life. There's also loss of territory in verse 7. Not only that, but they lose the control of one of the main trading routes. Everything is, is, looks terrible and sad. And it's a tragedy. And this was in every way a military tragedy. It was a territorial tragedy. It was an economical 
economic tragedy. Yet, I want us to think about the deeper tragedy that is here in the story. There is something much deeper in verses 9 and 10. Listen, listen to verses 9 and 10. They cut off Saul's head, stripped him of his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his armor in the temple of the Asherus and fastened his body to the wall of Ben-Shun. And do you, do you see it? Where the deeper tragedy is. The, the real tragedy here is that the Philistines are proclaiming news. Proclaiming good news. That their idols, to their idols and to their people, that Saul had, had fallen. Look, here is his armor. See, our gods are better than your gods. Ah, your Lord is, is nothing. Saul was, your, was the anointed king, and look, we've got his body and we've strung it up. The Lord is a loser. Do you see that? That's the deeper tragedy here, is it's making out the Lord's name to be a loser. The Lord's glory, the Lord's reputation, the Lord's name is being dragged through the gutter. Does that occur to you as you you read it? Does that in any way exercise our minds and our hearts the way that I think it should do? Does the glory of God weigh on us What and his name? Does Christ's name and Christ's reputation mean anything to us in that way? Christ's glory. You may have come across the, the, uh, the news reports um, about the American missionary, John Allen Chow, you've probably seen them in the papers, who was killed trying to take the good news of Jesus to the remote island of North Senegal. And of course, there's been lots of written about it, about the wisdom and the approach um, of Chow, and I'm not here to debate those. But as I was reading um, through the reports, one of the things that struck me above all things about that was his desire to bring glory to God. He had a real desire to bring glory to God. And listen to his, I think it was his final letter to his parents. He said, Mum and Dad, you guys might think I'm crazy in all, the, all this, but I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to these people. Please do not be angry at them or at God if I get killed. Rather, please live your lives in obedience to whatever he has called you to, and I'll see you again when we pass through the veil. This is not a pointless thing. The eternal lives of the Centralese tribe is at hand, and I can't wait to see them around the throne of God, worshipping in their own language, as in Revelation 7. I love you all, and I pray none of you love anything that this world has more than Jesus Christ. Sola Deo Gloria, he signs off. To the glory of God alone. What a letter. The tragedy, you see, the tragedy for Chow, 
The tragedy in this chapter, in chapter 31, is not primarily personal circumstances that we find ourselves in or Jonathan found himself in or Paul, uh, Saul. But the deepest tragedy is not to maximize the life that we have to the glory of God. To the glory of Jesus Christ, of what he's done for us. That is the deeper tragedy. Let's not miss it. A shameful tragedy. And finally, the headline is a gratitude expressed. A gratitude expressed. It's there in verses 11 to 13. This is the closest thing we get here in these last few chapters to a positive ending. Um, Four mutilated bodies hung up as prizes of war. Verse 11. When the people of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men uh, marched the night. They took down the bodies and went to Jabesh, where they burned them, buried them, and they fasted. Now, this was a really difficult task for them. It's about a 20-mile, at least, um, round trip for them. They've got to cross the Jordan River. Um, uh, and on the way back, don't forget, they've got to carry four decomposed bodies. It was all highly risky. They were going into enemy territory. And yet, I want us to notice, they thought it was necessary. They thought it was necessary. Now, why did they do this? And why does it end here? Because the men of Jabesh Gilead, they had never forgotten. They'd never forgotten something. If you go back to 1 Samuel 11, we're going to go and have a look at it later. Nahash, the king of the Amorites came and besieged Jabesh, Gilead. They wanted to make a peace treaty, but Nahash um, made his terms known. His terms were, yes, but on one condition, I gouge out the right eye of every one of you. Doesn't sound like a very fair peace treaty, does it? Uh, So the people of Jabesh, Gilead, they looked for help. They looked to be rescued, and Saul heard... Saul heard. And it says there in chapter 11, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him and he burned with anger. And so he took his army, he surprised the Amorites and they defeated them and sent them packing. It was Saul's finest hour. Under the compulsion of the Spirit of God, the Lord saved them through God's anointed king. And these people never forgot it. You wouldn't forget something like that, would you? And so when they heard that Saul had died and his corpse was hanging on the wall, they thought, you know what, this is the least that we can do. This is the least that we can do for the one who has saved us, for the one who heard my cry and helped. Let's give, give them a proper funeral. They'd never forgotten what the Spirit of God prompted the anointed king to do. And so despite everything that was going on, Saul being rejected, Saul being disobedient and rebelling and dead, they came 20 miles by night, great personal cost to them, and they showed gratitude, they expressed their gratitude to the anointed king of Israel. We need to stop there, don't we, and think for a moment Sometimes 
And I know this is true for myself, very much true for myself. And find ourselves in situations, in a similar situation. People like Saul, who are perhaps outside of God's favor, they're not, they're not Christians, they're not confessing to believe in Christ, as far as we can tell. And yet to whom you and I, we owe a great deal, a debt of gratitude. Um, it could be, and I think of this, it could be, it could be parents, for example, who provided for you at great cost. They may not care for your faith at all, but looking back on your life, they stay together, they, they work to give you a good start, to give you a certain stability and foundation that others may not have had. And so, should we not think that we owe them a debt of gratitude, and perhaps it would be good to express that from time to time by visiting, writing, phoning. I'm saying that to myself because I haven't phoned my mum for a while. But it might be other situations. It might be a boss who's not at all interested in your faith in Jesus, but has been loyal and kind to you in, a, in your position. Perhaps even when the business was going through a bad tough time and you could have been laid off for whatever reason, they kept you on, they didn't make you redundant. Might it be an opportunity to express gratitude? There's lots of people we should be grateful to. You see, there, there may be people who aren't trusting in Jesus, but to whom we owe much too. And that's what the men of Jabesh Gilead expressed, didn't they? Their gratitude. Yes, there's a certain futility to what they're doing. It won't change anything. The defeat stands, doesn't it? But there's a great dignity in this. It was the only thing they could do. It was the only thing they could really do. It reminded me a bit of the women in Mark 16 um, that go off to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body. You know the story. It must have seemed pointless. What were they doing? What's the point? Jesus is, is dead at that point. It's not going to change anything. But what, what propelled them to do and do that? Gratitude, wasn't it? Love, you see, love doesn't forget the king. Love doesn't forget the king. Even... In death, love offers kindness, expresses kindness. There have been times, of course, when men and women have been driven by gratitude towards an altogether better king than Saul, the anointed king of kings to Jesus Christ. And their gratitude has has not changed their circumstances at all. In sometimes cases, it's maybe made it um, worse and harder. But there is a compulsive gratitude that moves them because of the love, the kindness they've been shown through the saving grace of the King of Kings, of Jesus Christ. So I don't know whether what you think of that. If, that. if you're a believer here this morning... You see, we're in the shoes, aren't we? We're in the shoes, the footsteps of the men of Jabesh Gilead. Because you and I owe an unpayable debt to our king. And so we should be living in compulsive 
gratitude, expressing it over and over again to the king who has ransomed you from eternal sin and death and has pulled you out of utter darkness. You know, this is definitely one bleak ending, but it is the truth, isn't it? At times, in the darkness, when we're in the darkness, that we begin to see most clearly our need. The need here for a better king, for a better leader. One that would save us and help us. Help us for now and for eternity. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this even hard word to us that through we see more clearly who you are. We pray, Father, that you will help us to put our trust more firmly in your Son, the anointed King, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. Help us to trust him and to show our gratitude by living lives that express that gratitude. For we ask in his name. Amen.